listening to the Power of Three podcast, a Doctor Who podcast where three middle-aged gentlemen get together to discuss, discourse, digress and disagree as we work our way through the Doctor Who universe in its many, many forms. It's been a little while since we've been with you and we're back today to celebrate season two. And I'm Kenny Smith. I'm not alone. I've actually got, I think as Dave Steele once referred to us as, the OG with me today. And having mentioned Dave Steele, better let him say hello. Hello, Dave Steele. Hello, Kenny Smith. Hello, everyone else. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. And also with us, it's that other OG, the man who pretty much is our founding father in many ways. And he is not technically old enough to be our father, but he looks like he could be. It's Tom Harris. It's the beard, isn't it? It's the beard makes me look older. I I want to get rid of it, but Carolyn says I look dashed and uh, you know handsome with it so i'm keeping it my beard at the moment as long as it's been since lockdown because i've been so busy the last couple of months i haven't the time to even you know look at a mirror look at this look at that this is for the benefit of our youtube viewers look at this amazing <laughs> tom, tom did you not have to shave because you were off in some big international adventure well that's true i was supposed to be going to sierra leone and I thought, I don't want to have to go through passport and try to explain that, yes, that really is me in that passport photograph. So I, I shaved it off. And then the Sierra Leone trip was either cancelled or postponed. We don't know yet. Uh-huh. Um, so I decided to grow it back. We should point out, Tom, that your trip to Sierra Leone was not to look for the missing episodes from the crusade. No, but I was I was I was penciling in a little trip to the local television station just in case. <laughs> Can you imagine? That'd have been amazing. That'd be the best story ever. <laughs> yeah, we'd have. I, I demand the exclusive, Tom. Yeah, that would have been a really good episode. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we're going to discuss season two, and we've got a couple of. In fact, we've got three interviews, or is it two? We've got some interviews coming up. Uh, exclusive content so we'll be able to enjoy those later on but let's have a quick chat about it we're talking season two not series two so we're talking William Hartnell not David Tennant so Dave looking at it what just give us a quick overview any particular favourites in this season for you it's an interesting season I've not watched it probably since I did my big full Doctor Who watch through but it's I think I would sum up some series two up as a production team with high ambition who haven't really learned exactly what they can and can't do yet I think some of the stories have, um, like the chase and the Dalek invasion of Earth, they really don't quite live up to the imaginations of everyone who's trying to produce them. They don't quite have the the money or the time to do them as convincingly as maybe they'd like. But on the other hand, you've got something like The Crusade, which is just simply one of the best stories in the series history. And you've got stuff like The Time Meddler and The Bowmans, which plays it, which even now, watching it from our perspective, feels very modern compared to a lot of the other stories in that series. So it's, it's an interesting one. It's a series that's aware of its success, is confident enough to try new things, but hasn't really quite found its footing yet, I think. Tom? I, I kind of agree with Dave on that, but what I would say is that in the same way that the 
the second story ever of Doctor Who, you know, uh, the Dead Planet, saved the series. Uh, you know, because let's face it, if every episode and if every adventure was the same as 100,000 years BC, then the, the Doctor Who would not have lasted very long. It was the bug-eyed monster from Scarrow that saved it. Uh, and in the same sense, this second season, I think, probably helped cement Doctor Who as part of the schedules for a very long time to come. Because I think if you look at it, I mean, you know, there are, as Dave says, you know, they, perhaps the ambition of the production team uh, overtook the budget. But there is some amazing stuff in this. I mean, I, I think we're we're not far from peak Who at this point. I mean, there have been a lot of peaks during the classic series. But, you know, uh, The Romans, which is one of my favourite stories. The Web Planet, which is mind-boggling in, in terms of its ambition. Um, you know, the only story that I think that's, that's, that's not, that doesn't include any humans apart from the, the TARDIS crew. The Space Museum, which is a really interesting story. Uh, and The Time Meddler is, will go down in history as probably the story that really formed you know, created the template for so many adventures afterwards. You know, you've got the the Rebel Time Lord, you've got somebody else with a TARDIS, you've got, you know, trying to interfere with the course of British history. It, it is, what a brilliant selection of stories we've got here. I think that's, you're absolutely nailed it there, Tom. I think the variety and the scope and the scale of them is incredible. You're starting off with a, the story where they're miniaturized, then you've got Daleks invading Earth. A smaller scale story in the rescue, some fantastic history in the Romans, as you say, the complete and utter bonkersness that is the web planet, the genius of the crusade, which, like Dave said, I think is one of the greatest stories ever. Space Museum, brilliant first episode. Uh, moving swiftly on, the chase, a whole host of, of uh, locations changing from week to week as they go along. And then the time meddler, which again is another one of my absolute favourites. Um, has been since I first saw it in the 1991 repeat, and I genuinely 92, love it. Ben. So, thank you, Dave. 92 repeats. I'm a year ahead of myself. <laughs> um, wibbly wobbly, but I think it's such an it's such an eclectic mix, and I, I genuinely am so excited to get this one. Yeah. Do you have a favourite story out this lot, Dave? Um, I was thinking of this earlier on. It's difficult. I'd probably say tied between the three four partners the time medal of the crusade and the romans i think the execution of some of the other ones kind of makes them fall short for me and i blame all that on richard martin obviously he's the common link between the chase the web planet and dalek invasion of earth perhaps controversially i think those three it's difficult if i had to pick one it probably would be the time medal though because it's you know it's tom sort of hinted at it's the one the first one that we see someone else the tardis and I, even though i knew what happened in the story when i watched it in my big watched through a few years ago. The the impact of the cliff island Stephen and Vicky go into that, you know, whatever it is in the, the monks um little den and they find out he's got a ship as well is it's just was just was huge just as watching it as part of the ongoing narrative. I think I think the time medal just because it's you know, by the end of the series they're really they've really got an idea what they can do and what they can't and that's the one that really feels like proper Doctor Who as we would sort of imagine it nowadays, I think. Very it's not so. a complete history it's not a complete sci-fi, it's a good blend. Yeah, no, I, I would agree that I'd probably put the Time Medal at the top of my list on this season. But a special shout out to Web Planet because 
I mean, I have a particular affection for that because um, it was one of the first novelizations I read. Uh, Bill Strutton's, and, and what is brilliant about that novelization is it 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 reads like an adult novel. I, you know, I, don't, I don't mean adult as in you know <laughs> uh, in terms of relationships. <laughs> Leave that for the crusade. <laughs> Not, not, not adult as in adult, adult videos, but it, it, it doesn't patronise or talk down to its its intended audience. It is a really brilliant, um, brilliantly written book, and it's quite long. And the chapters, from memory, actually, the chapters exactly replicate each uh, episode of the television series, which most of the Target books didn't actually do. And it's got some great illustrations as well. So. My affection for the for the the, the television uh, program is is based on on my experience with the book, but also I'm old enough to remember when Who's Doctor Who was was broadcast in must be about 1977, um, and it's featured as an extra in one of the, the DVD box sets, and it was the first time I had ever seen archive footage from any of the old Doctor Who shows from, because as you know the BBC never repeated them um, and suddenly I saw on television the Zarbi um, and I remember being so excited by that and that's one of the reasons I just, I love the web planet, but by the way when we saw those clips on Who's Doctor Who um, I realised just how shit they looked but <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't matter because they were just, it was wonderful just when you mentioned the web planet, we've actually got a guest from that story popping up now. We've actually got Martin Jarvis and his wife Rosalind Ayers here to tell us his memories of working on this one. Hello, I'm Rosalind Ayers. And I'm Martin Jarvis. I suppose Doctor Who's come into your life. Obviously, you've been in it a couple of times on TV, Martin. Um, how is it from the outside, Ros, looking in when he's getting these parts as um, as a, a poor set upon governor and then an alien space moth? Oh, I didn't. I didn't see the the alien space moth was the, the butterfly. The yeah. Thing. Well, yes, uh, I, uh, I didn't know Martin when he did that. Well, he was not a butterfly. Men. He was a giant, he was a monoctra actually. Oh. <laughs> which is, is a sort of which was quite difficult because I, I had some filming for it where I had to fly in and land on a rock. Now that's hard enough um, for Peter Pan <laughs> landing on a windowsill or something, but um, flying in from a rock um, and jolly painful because of the uh, um, brace and, and, oh, and the wires and everything. So it's not any quite painful possibly why Peter Pan is often played by a female. But um, uh, I, I can remember flying in and saying something. We had to speak in high voices, which was quite easy. Uh, and um, <laughs> good evening, doctor. Welcome to my planet. And um, uh, rocking onto the rock um, and uh, trying to um, uh, be my character. I can remember when I went to meet the producer, the, the great Verity Lambert, and she was explaining the part to me, and um, she said, well, he's the prince of his planet. It's, it's a wonderful role. And I thought, great, uh, in this newish um, series called Doctor Who, uh, 
how wonderful. And then she said, would you like to see the costume designs? And I thought, oh, well, I'm going to be a bit like Hamlet or something. I'm going to be the prince. Uh, and then she showed me the costume designs, which were charming. But all I, all I was looking at was a giant moth, as you say. Um, and I'd already sort of said, oh, count me in, you know. Uh, and I thought, am I going to be like that? And I had sort of goggles for eyes and a sort of black head headdress and wings. And um, so it was a, a rather strange uh, uh, six weeks of, of, of filming and, and shooting and recording. So going for lunch in the canteen must have been tricky with the wings. It was. Well, it was going up in the in the lift that was the problem because you kept forgetting that you've got wings. <laughs> And then the door, you know, doors closing. Oh, 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 on. But that that was great. Thanks very much for that, Martin. I've always wanted to meet Martin Jarvis, so that was lovely. It was nice yeah, it when was. he popped by there, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. It was lo lovely guy. Yes. Yeah. Quite very taller. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean by that. I know, but he's such a lovely voice. But for me, I think the real highlights, as you picked out, I think they are between the crusade and the time meddler but given you covered those but other there's i mean there's great moments in all of these stories really i mean i think that the whole look of planet of giants is incredible they've done an amazing job I agree. Planet of giants yeah on a budget of virtually nothing yeah. and to achieve what they did is great and particularly when it's having been vid fired and seen it then the difference between the film print and the improvement in that was great and then to see it again i'm sure in blu-ray it's just going to look outstanding Dalek Invasion of Earth, it has its flaws. There's a great story in there, and I definitely prefer the movie version. Well, I think that's right. Um, yeah. It's a bit of a slog when you watch it. Is it seven episodes? Six. Six. Yeah. It's a bit of a slog, and it's probably, at the end of it, it's probably not quite worth the entire slog, but obviously a very important um, episode and very yeah. iconic. Yeah, it, it sets up the you know the invasion of template, gets rid of Susan, brings the Daleks back, which is very very significant. Um, the Dalek invasion of Earth, I think, was one of the first DVD releases to get replacement special effects on it. Am I right? That's right. Yep. And I think I think they really help it. They they smooth out a few of the rough edges, and you know the first episode I think is definitely the best. Do the whole ruined London stuff. It's it's very good. But no, I would agree with you both. I think the film's a masterpiece. Yeah, and I mean that David Hill sense, obviously. Oh, um, you mean? It's but it can it condenses it all down, and it's a lot tighter, and you know it's it's um yeah. they, have, they have the budget, and the time to kind of make it, you know, visually a bit more successful. Yeah, well, I yeah. Mean, of course the the rescue, of course, it, Tom introduces one of your favourite companions. It, it does. I I love Vicky. I love Maureen O'Brien. I, I was extremely sad to hear about the circumstances in which she left the show uh, at the end of Mythmakers and I think she was treated badly as the BBC did treat people badly uh, she wasn't the first or the last person to be let go with barely an explanation um, I just think a bit unlike Susan who, who irritated me in almost every story that she was in um, for the same old reasons that other people talk about you know she just seems to scream a lot and uh, grandfather uh, well have you met your grandfather recently love you going for a shock but Vicky was just great I mean I think she was really witty uh, she looked great um, she, was, she was given some great lines over the period that she was there so yeah what did you think of the trailer for the Blu-ray Tom I assume you've seen it 
Oh yes, I did see it when it first first announced a long time ago. Now, how long ago did we pre-order these things? Seems oh, like ages. Yeah. yeah. But it was lovely, wasn't yeah. it? Just to see her back in character and just perfect. Absolutely, she is. She's just. I, I just. I, I love Vicky. I think she's fantastic. Maybe you're a Vicky fan. Remember. Yeah, I like her a lot. I think Maureen O'Brien's a much better actor than Caroline Ford, conversely, yeah. which helps. Um, I remember actually now that we're talking about the trailer, there was some speculation before the the power of the Doctor was broadcast from a lot of people that all these little trailers for the for the Blu-ray sets were going to be worked into the plot and revealed to be all part of the canon. So it was um, it's quite amusing when that didn't happen. But they're great. <laughs> is it Peter McKeague? Is that how you pronounce it? The chap that's responsible for them. He, he does a great job on them and really um, and I think they're, they're so much better than they should be really because you know it, the, the Maureen O'Brien one clearly wasn't filmed in Greece you know <laughs> um, but it's just lovely I mean you never, you never think you never think you're going to see her playing Vicky again especially she, she distanced herself from Doctor Who quite a bit for a long time you know, she was quite dismi- dismissive of it so it's um it's nice when someone like that takes part again the, the trail's a lot of fun yeah I like this one. I think I liked it. I mean, as much as I liked the Sylvester McCoy one and the, the Trial of the Time Lord one, I, like, I think this one's probably been my favourite because you just didn't expect to ever see Maureen again, you know? Yeah. It's, it's probably appropriate at this stage to mention that on this DVD box set we've got The Chase when uh, when Ian and, and Barbara leave us uh, and are replaced by Stephen in the, in the TARDIS. Um, and that was the last ever appearance by Ian until the power of the Doctor and apparently with that appearance he became an entry in the Guinness Book of Records for the longest gap ever on any broadcast television series uh, by the same character, played by the same actor uh, with the longest period in between appearances I never do selfies I'm just not they're just not really my thing unless I'm with you guys and that seems to be the only time I seem to do them <laughs> but I was actually having a look it was on my um, my Facebook timeline the other day and this picture I'm just going to hold up to the camera so you guys can see it so hopefully it'll work yeah. and do you hold it a little oh yeah alright we go yes yeah. William Russell myself and Caroline Ford at the recording oh fantastic the domain of the Vord which was got 10 odd years ago in Big Finish so I think we're blessed to have have William Russell with us still That's when William was just a strip of a lad at 88 Indeed, such a, a bright young thing You're catching up on him quick Tom Anyway, let's move on to talking about We all things. are at exactly the same rate my friend Oh totally. that's true then, we'll just not pretend old age happens to other people um, Talking of older things, let's talk about the Romans because I think it's one of the funniest Doctor Who's ever, particularly the fight scene with Hartnell, where he's chuckling his way through it and he's absolutely having a ball. I think it is one of the funniest scenes of Doctor Who and it's it's one that's often overlooked and it's just Hartnell is just having a ball, getting that bit of physicality and just clowning around doing a bit of good old fashioned comedy. He definitely does look as if he's enjoying it. Um, what I remember most it's been a while since I watched it but what I remember most was a, a very un-Doctor Who-ish thing at the end when the the senior slave in the Empress household is revealed to be a Christian and he's wearing a cross and this provides all the motivation in re- in retrospect for his efforts to save Ian and his, uh, and his companions um, and the Doctor and I thought kind of unusual you don't 
usually get that kind of, I wouldn't say virtue signaling, but you don't usually get that sort of um, trespassing into the narrative of a religious theme. You know, you, 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 you get, you know, religious people, you get the sisterhood of Khan and you get all these made up religions all the time. But it's the, I think it's the only time, I could be wrong, when Christianity itself in quite that manner has kind of intruded. Quite yeah. liked it. It's quite interesting. It's very positive, isn't it? My yeah. favourite bit, and Kenny was talking about Bill Hartman's performance, my favourite moment in the Romans is the scene at the very start when they're discussing what they've just been eating. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, light, it's light years away from, you know, what he was doing at the very start of the series. You know, it's all the, oh! <laughs> you know, you can tell his background is in comedy, that he's done a lot of that. Because he's, as Kenny said, he's having a great time. He's hilarious when they're talking about the, was it quails or doves or whatever? And he's yeah. just like, you know, chefs kissing all over the place it's hilarious it's um and it's interesting because all the, the there's all the the funny stuff with the doctor and vicky but then you know ian goes through hell in this story <laughs> he does not at all so um it's um it's it's you know to use a sporting metaphor it's definitely a game of two halves it's a lot of fun it's a very he, 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 ian basically goes through the charlton heston timeline and ben Hur. <laughs> yeah you know he gets he goes from freedom to becoming a slave to get put on a slave ship and getting shipwrecked and find his way back. The only thing that was missing was a crucifixion scene at the end, and I'm surprised they didn't include that. Imagine. He'd have been quite that cross if that had happened. Big Finish will do a, a missing story idea. Yeah. Yeah. They'll find a way to kind of, you know, set between episodes three and four or something, I imagine. Well, let's pause briefly, gents, because it's time for our next interview as we've now got Peter Crocker, who's going to tell us all about the picture restoration on this box set, his biggest piece of work to date. Yes, hello, uh, I'm Peter Crocker and I do the picture restoration on the, DV, uh, the DVDs and Blu-ray sets. This must have been quite an exciting one for you, getting to remaster an entire series of black and white Doctor Who in one go and thinking, oh my God, there are so many episodes. Yes, the uh, yes, the volume was the main thing rather than the uh, the content. To be honest, because I mean, technically we've done handled quite a lot of black and white stuff before with the Pertwees that we've done, uh, you know, to greater or lesser degrees, especially uh, season uh, season eight, because of course only a few episodes of that um, exist in the original colour, so we had to restore the black and white versions as part of the process for the rest of them. So. Uh, so yeah, it's the volume really, just the sheer number of episodes. Because uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a school of thought that I, I subscribe to that uh, it would have been not a bad idea to split big black and white seasons from the sixties into two volumes, simply because of the sheer number of uh, episodes that would then potentially have uh, made it feasible to have a little bit more additional material than there's actually the case, but necessarily with if, if, if you've got way over 30 episodes um, in a set then if you're aiming for a similar sort of budget uh, in the shops something's got to give and that that something is the uh, is the additional material which is, is a slight shame i think because uh, some of some of the stories um, could do with a bit more but but what's there is pretty good so. yeah so with this, was it a case of going back to the previous DVD masters or were there any cases where you went back to the original films? Uh, it, it's a mixture really. The, uh, the, the two stories which 
were most compromised by the original restorations for various reasons were uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth and the Time Meddler. So we decided to go back and get new scans of all the relevant material for those and, and start absolutely from scratch. Whereas, and, and the others, we, we didn't get any new film transfers, so we used, we used the transfers that were done for the VH, uh, the, sorry, not the VHS, the DVDs, or in the case of, um, in the, case of the Crusade, um, that was just the original transfer that was done for the VHS and was subsequently used for the DVD because the condition of the film and accessibility of the film was such that uh, it just didn't really make sense to uh, to get that back and have another go. So, um, yeah, a, a bit of a mixture, but uh, I mean, if we, we, we could go through story by story, I suppose, and, and say what uh, what was done on each one because it, it varied. So a, few, uh, um, a few episodes were... Uh, essentially tweaked versions of the the DVD master, which is for the, is what we did for the stories that came out right at the end of the DVD range. The further you go back, the more likely it was to be to start you know starting from an earlier stage in the process. So we've got an opener with Planet of Giants. Was that any particular yeah, that problems was- with that? No, not really. That was that was that was one of the comparatively straightforward ones because it was done quite late in the uh, in the range for the DVD. So uh, the, the, there weren't many techniques that have subsequently been developed that we could apply to it that weren't available at the time. There were there were a few things that have been uh, improved though. The um, there was a there's a big off lock in one of the episodes. I can't can never remember which one it is. Is that? I can't remember if it's episode three or episode one. I think it might be episode one. Um, anyway, the picture completely breaks up for quite a big section. And I did a fairly, what I thought was a fairly good repair on that for the DVD. Um, and I looked at it and I could still see a few little artifacts giving the game away. So I've uh, just smartened that up a little bit again. It's, but as you said, that's essentially a. Um, a titivated version of the DVD, uh, DVD master, but of course it, it will look better on the Blu-ray simply because of the um, the better codecs that are used for the compression on the Blu-ray compared with DVD. Yeah. So you mentioned there that Dalek Invasion of Earth was a return to mm. print. So what did you come across in those? Any surprises that you hadn't spotted before? Um, the, 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 oh, surprises? Not 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 really. I mean, I mean, the biggest surprise, possibly, um, which was hiding in plain sight, and hadn't really—I don't think it really occurred to anyone—is um, um, on the old restoration team website. Steve Roberts mentioned that episode five was—it was a 35 millimeter film recording that it was broadcast from, rather than tape. And uh, he said it was a 405 line, but it, but the the paperwork and actually just looking at it, it, it it's absolutely clear. Um, when you, when you look at it, it's actually a six two five line recording. So um, so that's the you know um, that's the only six two five line um, William Hartnell story we have. Six two five lines came in actually when BBC Two started it at the beginning of April nineteen sixty four. So from a technical point of view, there's no reason why the BBC couldn't have made. Uh, Doctor Who on six two five line actually actually they you know they could have done it from November nineteen sixty three if they'd been minded to do it, but with it going out on BBC One there was no point if, if Doctor Who had been a BBC Two program it would have been on six two five line all the time, but um, it, it does look uh, it does look pretty stunning, 
because it, you know, in terms of the resolution, it's as, it's as sharp and detailed as the Pertwee's and you know, the, you know, later stuff. So that was that amazing. was nice to see. That's amazing yeah. new facts. I'm like, wow, there we go. I yeah. never, I'd always just assumed, I suppose, like we all had that it would just be the the lower 405, but there we go. Brilliant. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, the thirty-five. What the thirty-five mil film does is it uh, is it essentially removes the presence of film grain completely. There's no, there's no film grain um, on the picture uh, worth talking about. There, there is still grain there, but the grain that is there is the grain on the phosphor screen of the monitor that was used to make the film recording, um, which is a static pattern. Um, there's no real way of getting rid of that. Um, so the image is still a bit compromised compared with, you know, if, if, we'd had, if, if it had been recorded to tape, say, say to 625 line tape, it would have just looked as, as sharp as a Pertwee, but, or a Tom Baker for that matter. Well, any, any, up to McCoy, but, but just in black and white. Yeah. But yeah, it, 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 does look, it does look pretty good. And, and all of the other episodes, they're, um, they're in, um, there's, there's very, sort of various quality issues with them. The underlying film quality is pretty good on most of them. Um, I think one of them, episode six, I think we worked out is probably a, probably a dupe. So that's a little bit contrasting on a little bit lower resolution than the others, but mo- most of them are quite good. Uh, episode episode one of the episodes, I think it was episode four, I think it is, had a lot of um, uh, sort of twitching of the image, sort of sideways sideways twitching, which is a sort of electronic synch- synchronization problem that, w- that would have been on the playback of the tape originally um, and there was no way of fixing that on the uh, DVD um, but uh, with some sort of fairly sophisticated de-warping um, algorithms I've man- managed to sort that out this time so that's a bit of an improvement that uh, one of those things that hopefully people won't see rather than they will see <laughs> Is there ever any temptation when you've got something that was broadcast from a film print, just to see how it would look if it was vid-fired. Oh well, well it has been. Well, it has been vid-fired. I mean, all all of these have been vid-fired. Oh, sorry. I mean, uh, when it, if something had originally been broadcast from a film print rather than as a video. Well, well, that's. I mean, that, that that's pretty much. I mean, the the only one that has been broadcast is really broadcast from from a film print um, is Spear from Space. Um, I think um, with with Doctor Who. The um, the episodes in the sixties that went out that were broadcast from a uh, from film um, it's impo- it, it's understandable why people get confused but it's not the it's not the it's not it isn't actually film it is a film recording and it's indistinguishable it's indistinguishable from um, in 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 terms of the picture quality. Um, than uh, if it had been to through videotape first and then a film recording made of that. The only, the only difference is you don't get any tape dropout on a um, on, on, on something that's gone direct to the film recorder in the studio. But every other characteristic of it, the the lighting characteristics, the um, the way the cameras work, the way the light flares around highlights, the way you get comic tales when the camera moves across a. Uh, um, across a highlight, leaving a sort of a, 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 a trail behind it. All of those are things that you don't get on a film camera, um, that you do get um, in, a, in a TV studio that's still there on the film recording. The, the, um, 
ju just the way the whole the, the way the whole image is made. It's still an electronic image, um, and if you'd been watching it in the gallery in the um, in the production gallery um, on the monitors, it would have looked identical to all of the ones that went on tape. So basically, the rule is if it was um, if if the image is shot with an electronic camera. Um, what it was recorded to is irrelevant, whether it's videotape or a film recorder. The point is it was recorded with electronic cameras with all of the characteristics of an electronic camera, 50, 50 fields per second interlaced. And therefore, it's, um, it's appropriate to, to, to do vidfire. Um, you know, I understand the argument that people say, well, it, it was broadcast from the film recording originally, so that's what people saw at home. To which my response is, well, fine, get you know, get yourself a, a, a four or five line television, um, and uh, you know, you know, what, you know, watch it on that, um, because we, you know, um, we're not living in the sixties anymore, uh, and we're watching on different sorts of television, and we want to make these things look as as good as they possibly can, and try and match what they would have looked like in the studio, and and not compromise them by. Um, uh, um, anything that's happened to the recordings in between. Yeah, I have to say, I know you mentioned Spearhead. I'm thinking, what would that look like if it fired? Um, horrible. It, 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 it wouldn't look right because, mm -hmm. it, it, again, it comes back to the um, the thing about how uh, the, 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 um, the inherent characteristics of the picture that you get with the film. So if something is, is, is shot with film cameras and, and, and those lenses and the lighting that's used on film, um, it's, an, it's entirely different. The, uh, the, the range of the colors that can be captured is different. There's a much wider range of, of colors and, and, and contrast that, that you can have. But, you know, things like, you know, I think there's more detail in the shadows, but it's things like no comet tailing. You know, if, if the camera if the camera pans across, um, there's no smearing. Um, it captures. Uh, you know, there, there might be there might be a little bit of motion blur. Um, that's to do with the shutter speed, but uh, you you don't get artifacts like um, you know comet tails as as you pass. You know, highlight. You don't you don't you don't get weird artifactual colours appearing around the edges of candles and darklit scenes and things like that. So 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 no. Um, you know, you can you know you can vidfire film, but I would never do it because it'd be a waste of time and it would just it would just look really it would look really odd. Most TVs now you can you can do a sort of ersatz um, vidfire on it by applying lots of by. Um, motion processing in it it's usually got some fancy name like you know super super, super sharp speed image you know sort of image on, on your flat yeah. screen tv um and uh, and a lot of people will, will often call it the soap opera effect because it, it, it makes the film look like it, a soap opera and that's just the association between soap operas being generally on video as opposed to film but yeah it doesn't um, you know uh, it doesn't work in the same in, in, in the same way that um, in the in the same way that crude filmizing actually doesn't work either. You know, it's what it's what you know, like in the early days, or at one point in the early noughties, I think it was, or late nineties. Uh, for a while, the makers of Casualty on BBC One, um, they, they, they you know they 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 made the mistake. You know, never lie. That's the thing. You know, do, do what you want, but just don't lie about it. They they said we've we've shifted to making it on film to make it look better. 
and, and it, 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 they hadn't made it on film. Made the, they were shooting it in the normal way with the video cameras, and all they'd done is dropped a field. So they'd reduced the resolution to about roughly, well, slightly less than 405 line TV. And, um, and, it, and it looked absolutely awful. And after about three or four weeks, after, due to complaints, they just went back to how it was originally, you know, you know videos, videos, here's what it is, telly's telly, film's film. You've got to be very careful, um, you know, mixing them up. So move on to the rescue. How was that? Was that another straightforward one? Yes, it was, but that was a that was a comparatively early DVD. So with that one, while we used the the transfers that were done for the DVD, I, I went back to square one and did a, a brand new restoration from the uh, from the graded film transfers that Jonathan Wood had done back in the day. Because there, there were quite a lot of issues with those stories that I, I felt could be tackled a little bit better now. So so they should look a fair bit you know, a fair bit better. Than, than they did before, but there weren't. I don't. I don't think there were any major difficulties with them. Again, again, the, one of the episodes of the rescue had some synchronisation issues on with the tape playback, so the picture twitched an awful lot, and that's been sorted out for the for the Blu-ray rather better. Um, yeah, and the Romans. Um, same, same for the Romans. Same for the Romans. Again, there was a big off-lock in episode one of that, where the picture um, just goes all over the place. And again, I think I've improved the fix of that, which was uh, which was nice. The, um, the the technical review, I was expecting them to to make some sort of comment about it, but they they barely made a comment at all at that point. So, so I was quite pleased about that. Just briefly to go back to the Dalek Invasion of Earth, there's a new um, uh, there's a new restoration technique that we've pioneered on that um, that James Insell, who originally developed reverse tenors conversion you know, for the BBC. Um, he's, he's been working on and it's something that we've been trying to find a solution to for quite a long time and I think uh, James has got us now about I would say probably about 80% of the way towards a, a solution and that's the problem of um, out of face film on film recordings where you get double imaging so if something was on film originally and played into the tape when it was copied back onto film recording for foreign sales which is what we've now got it's a 50-50 chance whether the the film insert is um, in synchronization really with the videotape. And a lot of the time, if it isn't, it's what we call out of phase and you get a rather juddery double imaging on the um, on the pictures. And, and James has written a program uh, which very cleverly sort of unpicks the original image as much as possible. Doesn't work. He doesn't work all the time, and, I, and, and where he doesn't work, I think it's because um, it's not straightforward out of phase. There's more going on than that. So it's probably a bit a bit too technical to go into uh, for for something like this. Something like this. Um, I, I'm not. I, I'm not sure I can even explain it very well. Um, so I couldn't expect anyone to understand it. But um, but if, if anyone's if anyone does understand if. If, if a polygon telecine was used for the original transfer, that sometimes gives the same effect as a, uh, as being out of phase, but it, that won't be fixed by the um, uh, by, by this process. But, but on Dalek Evasion of Earth, particularly in episode one, there's an awful lot of film 
that uh, that, um, that doesn't look very good uh, um, on the DVD or anything else. Uh, but it looks an awful lot better now because we've been able to use James's processing to to try and unpick it. So quite pleased with that. So that's a, that's a big big leap forward, and and that'll be applicable to some of the pertwees when we get to those as well. I think. Let's um, head off to the madness that is the web planet. That yeah. I would imagine would be an interesting one, given that with all the smears of Vaseline and, and you're t- on, the, on such likes on the original cameras, yeah. and I'd imagine that would be a bit of a pain at times when you're trying to work out how sharp to get the image and things like that. Well, I mean, well, I mean, it was fairly crudely applied, so most of the image is, is sharp. You've just got the bits with the with the vaseline on that's uh, just smeary in the middle, um, and, it, and you know, it is what it is. It's just you know the the, sm- the, the smeariness is very high resolution there. Um, it's, uh, um, yeah, the wet, the wet planet was that that was that was fun to do. That was another one where it, I mean, really, if if we'd had uh, if we'd ha- would had a little bit more time, a little bit more budget. We would definitely have gone back and uh, had new 2K scans of those episodes done and and started from scratch because that was a fairly early um, uh, DVD. But in the end, we um, we went back to the original transfers and and did that. Uh, the the difference with this is uh, rather than going back to the graded version that uh, Jonathan had done, um, he. Um, used to cut frames out at shot changes to get rid of dirty cuts where there were disturbances of the vision mixer and such like because back then in 2004 probably 2003 it might have even been it was it was very difficult to fix that sort of fault and he, he just used to cut them out which resulted in episodes usually being about t- ending up about 10 seconds shorter than they originally were not that you'd particularly notice it because it, you were just, it was just a frame here and two frames there being nipped out um, but um, we don't do that now. We, we we repair and fix. So so we went back to what's called the one light transfers, which is basically the raw film transfers before it was graded. And then I matched the grade to uh, to what he'd done originally because he, he, he was pretty good at that. So that's you know short short of getting a new uh, new film transfer in high definition. That's uh, that was a, that was a complete back to square one job. And I'm quite pleased with how that looks. Actually, that's um, it's it looks pretty good in places. And the, the as usual, Mark has done a, an amazing job with the sound on that as well. Um, so clear, it's very very good. It's one of those I always enjoy, but one that I'm particularly looking forward to is the Crusades because it's one of my all-time favourite stories. I just think it's poetry yes. in motion and. Mm. I mean, I remember the first time I saw episode three on the Hartnell years, I thought, what the hell is this? But then put it into context when you hear the audio or put everything together and it's amazing. So this, of course, I think we mentioned previously, this was going to be an interesting one always with episode one. The fact that yes. I think you said it was going to start about, if it was 5%, then it'd be up somewhere now about 70, 75%. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it's turned out better than I could have hoped really. We we decided not to get a new transfer of it for uh, for various reasons. It, it's just that really, um, I think I think there were there were too many factors mitigating against it. It would have been uh, it would have been quite a faff. It involved a bit of expense really, because the the film is is very well kept for, but it's it looked after. But it's it's in a, it's uh, in the states, 
and and that's not a me- you know that's not necessarily a problem because we actually it's actually owned by the same person who has some of the time metal prints that that we we did get sent over and uh, and, and retransferred and also the abominable snowman episode for that blu-ray so it's, it you know it's not so much the difficulty of getting it over from america it's with with that it's more the case that um, it was the the print was so knackered by projector damage before it originally reached us in the in 1999 that i was dubious that after all this time a new transfer um, would give us that much benefit because even even if it's been really well looked after it's now over 20 years later and i my concern is that um, because of the way the print was damaged because uh, it wasn't so much scratched it was it was more like folded slightly like, like it had a big crease put in it um, and, and it was scratched as well and damaged but with, with all that potential emulsion damage I, I, I was concerned that if we put it through even quite a gentle gentle scanner all that would happen is that where the film had folded it would just cause the emulsion to just to fall away um, and go away from the print and make it effectively you know, completely ruined so I, um, even then it would just leave us with a a, a, a real problem of fixing it and it would never be perfect because of the severity of the damage so episode one it's a case of well can we you know to what degree can we make a silk purse out of a sow's ear and i think what we've got is we've got we have got a silk purse but it looks like it's been made out of a sow's ear <laughs> <laughs> but it's i think i think the main thing is that um, it, uh, i showed it to a couple of people and we agreed that it was probably just about good enough to have vidfire uh, applied to it, because while it looked while it looks damaged, we thought, well, you know, you, you can have videotape that's damaged as well. And if people if people just start watching it, um, it's never been going to be pristine, but it does sort of look right when it's vidfired, for the most part. So the uh, so the studio bits of that are done. So yes, I'm I'm, I'm pleased with how it's come out and. Uh, I think anybody who watches it who doesn't know the history of the episode and thinks that it ought to be like all of the others will probably be disappointed by the the faults that are still there that, that are just not fixable really um, and never will be um, you know we'll, we'll just need to find another print before you know um, the solution um, but but I think anyone who has seen the original version on on VHS first and then subs- and then subsequently on DVD will probably be quite pleased with the leap forward in how that looks. Yeah, yeah, it, it does look a fair bit better. Yeah, brilliant. And then we've got Space Museum. Yeah, the Space Museum. That's a, that's that that's another one that is a it's a from scratch um, job using the transfers done for the DVD. It was tempting to use the DVD master for that, but when I actually looked at it, there was an awful lot of there were an awful lot of things burnt in that was just, it was just going to be too difficult. But um, one of the things that we uh, find a lot easier to get to, to you know, fix now that we couldn't back in the day or couldn't easily do back in the day is get rid of the black marks that were present on the film recorder screen. It was just it was, it was just going to be difficult to get rid of those. Um, on the on the DVD master uh, for for all sorts of reasons, uh, so I just decided, well, let's go back to square one. So, um, so uh, again, I think I think it looks a fair bit better 
I think it's probably you know it's not the it's not the best. I think it's great. It's a great episode one. It's like it's it's like a lot of stories. It's like I think Death of the Daleks is is is, is very similar. Yeah, you know, it's one of the best episode ones of the entire series, and then it sort of all falls apart a bit after that. But it's uh, yeah, I I, th- I think it uh, I think it looks okay. Certainly a lot better than the than the DVD. But there there weren't any major issues with that that I can recall. Excellent. Probably <laughs> <laughs> then some more Dalek fun for the end towards the end of the season with the chase. Yeah, the chase. Yeah, yeah. I love the chase. It's 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 it's, it's, it's a great deal of fun. I, I love that because of the chain, the different uh, places in each in each episode. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's another one that um, I went back to um, the, the source tapes for the uh, for the for the DVD and and re uh, and redid it. I'm afraid anyone who's expecting the um, the day for night shot in episode one to be um, um, as original is going to be disappointed because that was that that was um, largely fit largely changed in the um, in the graded version that I have and I don't have a I don't have a one, a one light original transfer of that so you know if if I if I'd wanted to try and recreate the you know the the un, ungraded version I would have had to. You know, uh, you know, um, use another copy as ref- uh, probably VHS copy as a, as, a, as a reference, and then sort of try and undo the grade that was already done, and that never that never works out well. So um, it is what it is. But what what I would say is that in the in the QC process that's done by third parties, it wasn't nothing was flagged as being look, looking bad or wrong on that shot. So I'm, I, I stand I, I stand by with what we did to, really, to be honest. I know Richard Martin's happy with it. So. Well, there you go. If the director's happy, then that's always a good sign. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the thing is, you know, the, you know, um, if it was if it was left as original, uh, people, you know, it, it draws the viewer out of it because pretty much everybody would watch. Hang, what's going on here? Hang on, that doesn't make sense. What's going on? Uh, so, and and the, the the only reason for doing it is is some sort of well, I, I, I suppose you know so, some some people remember well that, that's how it was when I first saw it, and I, I do have some sympathy with that. Um, but if if we're going down that route, we wouldn't do anything to you know, we wouldn't do anything to anything. So anyway, yeah, um, it's it, it you know it's it's still it's still graded to match the surrounding shots is is what I can say. Because I didn't have, because I didn't have the raw materials to leave it as it was. If I if I did have a one, if I did have a, an ungraded transfer of the episode, I think we would have thought a lot more about it and weighed up the pros and cons of what to do. And I have to say, I suspect we'd have probably still changed it. But as it is, that wasn't that wasn't really an option. So it's you know. Yeah, uh, people have to wait for another version to, <laughs> with a, with a with a raw transfer for that to be the case. It'll be the 3D 4K version. That'll be the one. I think so. Yeah, on a hologram, on a holographic cube. Yes, because <laughs> uh, we got left with a time meddler, which is another one where we went back to all. We got all of the films transferred. I think the seven prints in existence, no negatives, um, and there's various differences between them. So it's very much a, a case of mix and matching. But the the benefit of getting the new transfers is it's much less zoomed in than it was. But for the DVD, because it was a budget release on DVD, and with hardly any 
budget allocated to it, hardly any extras and an even cheap restoration. Um, because they, they, they originally the idea was put it out at a budget price. We've had to use the VHS transfers, for, uh, VHS master transfers, which were not great. So immediately with getting new transfers, uh, we've got a lot more picture. There were, um, it was zoomed in before to, remove, to hide scratches at the edge and uh, fix the scratches now, which we couldn't do back then. So it's all good fired, all looks very nice. And it's going to be, that's the one that's been chosen to be shown at the BFI, which I'm very pleased about because I think that's the one, it's the one, that and the Dalek Invasion of Earth are the ones that um, show the biggest improvements in quality comp- over the DVD. But particularly the Time Meddler, it's, it really is chalk and cheese. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm very pleased with how it's turned out. And I think it's a great story. It's arguably, I think, one of the most entertaining and best stories of the season. So I think, you know, that, that, that's uh, certainly the jewel in the crown for me. Yeah, I look forward to seeing it vid-fired in its full glory for the first time because yeah, I remember you saying that. Yeah, it looks great. Peter, Peter Butterworth so, is, is, is so great, yeah. Very engaging is the monk and you can see why they would bring him back in season Absolutely. three. Yeah, great really? character. So briefly, what was your personal highlight? Personal highlight, um, from a technical point of view, I'm very pleased with, uh, although its use is limited, um, James Insel's um, software for out-of-face film I'm very excited by because that's a, that's a major step forward that we've been you know, dreaming about for years, uh, many years, and it, although it's not 100% there, it's, it's, it, you know, it's good enough. And, and and then and then the time meddler, which is such a you know, it's so much better than the DVD. Um, I'm I'm just really pleased with what we've been able to do with uh, do with that, um, because I think for most people it'd be like watching it for the first time. That's amazing. Thank you, Peter. As always. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks very much for that, Peter. Peter Peter Crocker. I don't know if you're listening. We really appreciate your efforts in these box sets. Honestly, above and beyond. <laughs> Well, we've mentioned uh, Web Planet, and definitely its ambition is absolutely the word that goes with that. And I do still laugh every time I watch it and the the Zarbi that runs into the camera. But of course, there's some very clever things in there. The fact that the main monster is the carcinome, which of course derived from carcinomic, as in the word for cancer. And I think that's quite a clever thing. Uh, I remember when I first discovered that and thought, oh, that's, that's good. I like that. The, the ambition of it absolutely outweighs what they could do. But it's still a worthy venture, and having done that, as you said already, Dave, we've mentioned briefly how much we enjoy the crusade. Yes, I think for me it's it's the depth of it, and I think it's the fact that we get some amazing, fascinating characters in there, and I think that's what really you I really enjoy that. In fact, I think that episode three is possibly my favourite single episode of Black and White Doctor Who. Um, oh, really? The Wheel of Fortune, yeah. And it always also contains that wonderful line that we live in hope that one day they will return or something like that, which of course can be applied to missing episodes. Yeah. What what I really like about the Crusade is that um unlike, say, the Web Planet or um even Planet of Giants, which is, you know, quite fantastical, it's it's about as and I'm this I, I hesitate to use this word, but it's only one for it. It's about as realistic I think as Doctor Who gets. It's very adult. Is played completely, you know, almost completely straight. There's not as much humour as as there is in some other stories in this season. It's a long time since I've watched and listened to it, um, but I remember just being really impressed by, you know, people. I've seen people complaining 
that um, episodes about episodes two and four not being animated. But when I did my watch through, I listened to the CD that came with the VHS release, and I followed it perfectly because David Whittaker's dialogue and storytelling is so good. So as you say, I'm looking forward to see what the reconstruction is like because even if they just put the soundtrack on, people would have followed it. It's so well done, and it's um yeah, it's probably the most adult story that Doctor because Barbara's in real danger at points, and again, Ian has a bit of a tough time, you know, um, trapped in the desert and all that. It'll, it'll be interesting to revisit that one because it's another one that I've not listened to or watched for a long time, but it's just so grown up, I think, as Doctor Who ever got. So be interested to see what a lot of people that maybe haven't experienced it beforehand think, you know, or see it for the first time will think about it. Yeah. Tom, are you any strong feelings on it from the surviving episodes? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's got a terrific cast. I mean, if you look at the the, the status of the cast, I mean, they're, they're remarkable. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting reminder that I don't think you'd call it celebrity casting in those days, but it's a reminder that the quality of the cast was just as high then as it is now. Um, now, Bernard K wasn't Bernard K in the Alec Invasion of Earth. Yeah. Yep, mm-hmm. he's Tyler. Yeah, that's right. So, so he was like in the same season twice as two different characters. I wonder how many actors have done that. Quite interesting. Peter Purvis does it in this in this. Um, well, Peter Purvis is in one story. There's <laughs> these two characters in the same flaming story. I mean, well, I, I won't, I won't hold you up by asking you how the hell that happened. But that's how I was talking to my wife about that recently. I said, you know, it's the most bizarre thing because Peter is such. Uh, you know, there's the character who plays Stephen is such a great character. He's one of my favourite companions from that era, um, and it's just bizarre to see him turning up with a Stetson at the top of the Empire State with an American accent, and then for him to turn up again later on as the prisoner of the Mechanoids. I remember that the first time I met him at a Doctor convention, which I think must have been Coventry in 1998. I think it was Panopticon. He did a little turn at the start of his panel. And he, there was a Dalek on stage, and and he came out and sort of did the whole dumb American hick on holiday so <laughs> you know, improvised it, saw the dialect did the reaction and he was he was brilliant, he's so underrated and it's such a shame that so much of season 3 is missing because I think if mm. it wasn't, if we still had it I think Stephen and Peter Purvis would be held in much more regard and he's, he's yeah, another that, that's living to a fine old age and I hope I don't jinx it you know, <laughs> hope we have him for a, a good bit longer I'm glad that he's involved in the behind the sofa features on this yeah, yeah this one you mentioned earlier there, David Whitaker, Dave. It just so happens that yes. um, one of the extras on this box set is uh, Toby Haydock going on a look to find out who he was. And we're actually in luck because Toby Haydock's going to join us now for a wee chat about finding David Whitaker. Hello, my name is Toby Haydock, actor, writer, comedian, and Z-list Doctor Who bore, and I present a documentary on the season two box set called Looking for David. As uh, somebody who likes their Doctor Who, just a little bit, Toby, and you like to know the minutiae about the lives and the careers of everybody involved, this must have been almost manna for heaven for you getting involved with another one of these documentaries after the wonderful previous ones. I, I think it's... Uh, it could be said to be right up my street. I think I think that's the lovely thing about these box sets is that th- there's such a broad spectrum of extras that I think every taste is 
catered for because i know i know there are some people in fact i'm i'm writing this book about quatermass at the moment and i had to email a couple of friends and go how how many words is too many for a biography of a supporting actor from one episode of Quatermass? Because because I've I've researched all there is to know about all of the because I'm fascinated with the the people, but I totally understand that other people are more interested in either uh, you know the um, um, sort of more fact sort of location based stuff or or people like the fun stuff, which is the you know the top two celebrities watching episodes they weren't in and having fun with that. There's you know there's there's a broad spectrum of stuff that caters to all tastes, but mine is is very much the stuff that I like to do anyway. Is this stuff that's a bit more. Um, archaeological but but at the bottom of the dig is a is a person and i think it's because i i was brought up in the middle of nowhere and i read these names and they said they were hallowed names you know and i learned pretty quickly that i always assumed david whittaker was dead because it sounded like an old name uh and he was on the the spine of doctor who and the daleks which had you know an old looking william hartnell i always imagined they looked quite similar and actually david whittaker was a sort of um, slightly skeletal man with white hair um, and so I was not surprised when I discovered that David Whittaker was dead as a, as a youth because um, he died in the early 80s and I was sort of becoming cognizant of this stuff in sort of 83, 84 um, and then I discovered Malcolm Hulk was dead Brian Hales were dead and so Sutton was dead so suddenly all these names it seemed to me like everybody involved with Doctor Who was dead um, as it turned out actually that, that, that wasn't the case um, but um, and I was fascinated in the people and i thought the idea that you would one day meet somebody from doctor who would be an extraordinary thing again i was in the countryside in the middle of nowhere but also we didn't know anybody in the business or anything like that and i thought it must be amazing to be you know one of these but i thought i thought what amazing lives they must lead as you get older you realize that the reality is is a bit more complex and nuanced and melancholy than than that they are my doorway to to a magical realm you know they were my wardrobe to narnia and i and i've always been very grateful to particularly those target books which were which were all that you had in between series and it was the the only gateway to the to the past as well so i was surprised that we that chris wanted to do david whittaker because i sort of almost thought he was too well known because i think he's always been acknowledged as you know we were lucky to have him as the first script editor and and it's clear from a lot of the paperwork that he steered you know he steered the scripts in the direction of the scripts that of the better better elements of the scripts that we got in that first year and the the shape of the show but but actually as chris was talking he said well yeah but what do you actually know about him and it was almost that because he died it was like oh yeah david whittaker script editor brilliant and sadly died and we sort of drew a line and said now who else can we find so so going right back to unlike peter r newman about whom we knew nothing or lenny main whose life had maybe been overshadowed by the manner of his death this was more we've taken david whittaker a little bit too much for granted there's probably more to find out and indeed there, there was having seen those pictures and particularly the gravestone that was something of a shock the fact that it was almost quite overgrown and just abandoned whereas to me david whittaker is that one of the the founding fathers of doctor who Yes, I don't know why. Yes, there's, maybe we should... Um, Matthew Sweet did a brilliant thing, didn't he, when he went to Tony Beckley's gravestone in the States last time when they went to Gallifrey and they gave it a bit of a clean. I wonder if there should be some sort of, you know, Doctor Who volunteers group to go and tend the, tend the grave sites of uh, those who've 
made our show. I do find it quite touching. I'm I'm interested in in people. I like people, and as I say, I, I'm I'm overjoyed to have met as many p- people as I ha- as I have who were involved in the making of the show because that seemed like such a, an, an amazing thing to do. But I I feel unlike sort of discovering a fact or. Uh, you know some production documentation or something like that you know I think there's something quite humbling about people because those those people no matter how old and crusty they may seem or how from a different time or detached they are by um, I'm not just talking about Doctor Who people it's when you see you know when you see flickering images from 1888 or whatever you think well each one of those people touched and felt and smelt and looked through the eyes exactly in the same way that I am now and everything was as real and tangible and desperately important to them as my life is now and and actually you know all this stuff shows that we're just kind of dust in the wind and I've, I'm, I, I, I am forever fascinated by that and I think the idea of sort of ensuring that somebody lives on even if only a, a vague capturing of their essence or personality I mean, in the case of Peter R. Newman, you know, we 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 found his face which we'd not had before, and we found his voice which we'd not had before. Um, we knew what David Whittaker looked like, but we've got we've got more evidence of that now, and 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 a little bit of his voice as well. It it just, I don't know. It's it somehow it it, it stands as a sort of a, 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 as a sort of monument, and I think that's quite you know that's quite touching and that's quite humbling, really. And 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 I and it's the sort of thing I love to do. Yeah. What were your personal highlights from this documentary? Well, it was a hard one actually, because I think I mean it'll, it'll make good viewing, but it didn't mean it was particularly pleasant. It's quite a sad story, so I think the highlights are more, if I'm being dispassionate and journalistic about it. Than in terms of me, Toby, who likes Doctor Who and wants everyone to be happy. <laughs> uh, you know, when you put the flesh on the bones of uh, somebody lived in Australia for a while, or you know, somebody um, was no longer married to that person, was now married to this person. When you then, you know, actually join those jigsaw pieces together, the picture is is a is a sort of rather melancholy one. And 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 we were blessed with having Simon Guerrier who is uh, writing a book on David Whittaker and, and and I went with him to the BBC archives and we went through his f- file and Simon had already done a load of really interesting groundwork and, and found some really interesting sort of political stuff there that we can't be a hundred percent certain on but certainly the hypothesis that Simon has is a convincing one and and that puts a slightly different um, angle on on David's writing career but again, I, I assumed that if you if you worked on Doctor Who, you only didn't go back to it because your life was hunky dory else, elsewhere, and and you know you'd only go back if you if you suddenly needed you you, you were blessing Doctor Who with a return visit because you were a hallowed name from the old days. Whereas of course, as you grow up, you realise a lot of these people. I think William Ems, who wrote Galaxy Four, was trying to write Doctor Who for the next twenty years, but they just didn't want to. I, I, that that was that that computed my head. It's like if you wrote for it from in the early days, you, uh, I'm sure I would have thought the door was open. So, uh, and and I found out a couple of things that. Um, make connections to other elements of Doctor Who uh, and but as you say because of the nature of these documentaries 
I, what happens is I'll sort of say to Chris, well, maybe you should try those people because when I interviewed so-and-so, they said so-and-so is a friend of theirs or whatever. And so I make a few suggestions, and, and but at the same time, Richard Bignall, who's done a lot of groundwork for other projects that he's done, he's always got a pretty good idea of how the land lies. And then because we, we knew Simon was writing this book, or we found out in pre-production that Simon's writing this book. Simon, you know, came on board as a as a huge sort of person to say, well, this might be a fertile area, this might be a fertile area. And then I take a step back because everything I find out and pretty much everyone we go and see is is news to me because it's much more interesting if I'm, you know, finding stuff out on, on camera or, or reading that document for, for the first time. So I'm kind of then in, in the dark. And that's that's quite interesting, but it means, I remember I had to read a, a letter out that's, a, that's, that's written by his wife after he's died that I found I thought was really emotional. Uh, it was really quite, um, and, uh, and I was outside his, I was outside the, the last place that he lived as I read it. And again, it's just that weird, Doctor Who's time travel, is it? It's about connecting, connecting to the past. And I found that it suddenly, you know, it suddenly all seems so real rather than a name on a dusty spine. Yeah, that's wonderful, Toby. Um, because I love these pieces and just finding out all these facts about the names that we know, the names that we've seen profiled in Doctor Who magazine, but never actually sort of really got to meet and know. So fantastic. And I would imagine that there must be a few other names out there that you would love to investigate personally. If you could pick, who would you be like to find out about? Well, I mean, because because there's about there's about six in season one, and uh, and we'll be allowed, I guess, one if we're lucky. Because I know season one will be will probably be, you know, pretty jam packed. Anyway, although that beginning box set is from the DVD is is superb. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I've I've sort of made a list, uh, and and I think we I mean I've I've suggested somebody for each box set, and the fact that that we're not on each I'm not on each box set shows that you know they don't always go for the suggestions. Uh, it's it's very much a juggling act um, of, of of what they want to put on. Um, I think I would like to find out Norman Stewart, who directed some of the who directed Power of Kroll and Underworld, and who has this strange career of being a production assistant, who's really highly regarded, then becomes a director and directs Underworld <laughs> and, Power of Kroll, and then and, and some of the Omega Factor, and then becomes a production assistant again, which is a very odd career trajectory. And he's also one who we don't know for sure is no longer with us. Phil Newman traced him and got an interview with him a decade or so ago, but there's there's been no definitive answer. He was Canadian as to whether he's alive or not. So that could be one where I go looking for somebody and actually find them. Which do you know what? That'd be nice for a change, wouldn't it? You actually go looking for the person you have tea with them, and so I'm not always I'm not always ending up crying at a death certificate <laughs> and a trip um, to Canada and a trip to Canada would be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, Blooming Zoom. I would be interested to tell the story of George Spenton Foster, who is another of that period's directors. Because I think we tend to think back to the black and white era, but actually, you know, the 70s is a hell of a long time ago now. And George Spenton Foster, you know, there's the story that he he, he worked on Brookside and uh, and and 
walked off because he didn't like the cast swearing. Um, but he was also, he was a call boy on the Quatermass experiment. So, you know, he runs the whole gamut of television. Um, and we don't know an awful lot about him. Um, but then, you know, from the earliest, there's quite a few one-off people in the uh, in, in the John Wiles era and John Wiles himself, you know, the producer who was the, the square peg in the round hole. I think season three is fascinating. And as lots of season three is missing, I think I should actually have a looking for on every single disc of the six three, season three box set because <laughs> I could do that. Uh, on Twitter, I was trying to get to, I was, I was backing and forthing with a few people a couple of weeks ago because um, there was a thread of pictures of every single Doctor Who writer and they didn't have a picture of David Ellis who co-wrote the faceless ones and I've got one from a newspaper that's really mucky and then Les the the the, the specter of Leslie Scott rose up who's you know credited on the arc but Paul Erickson also always said oh she didn't write much of it it was an arrangement uh, and I'd done a bit of looking a few years ago and found no evidence of Leslie Scott marrying Paul Erickson, who was really called Frederick R. Watts. So we were having this chat on Twitter. So I went back to all of the old records and I did find a census that had Leslie Erickson living with Paul Erickson, uh, but also a previous wife and a later wife. And I don't know if Leslie was was the previous wife. I don't think she was now. And there was an actress I found called Leslie Scott at around the same time who stops being called Leslie Scott at around the time that this Leslie Erickson appears. But I don't know if they're both the same person. So there's plenty to do there. Even if she wrote not a word, she was still an, in, an entity. She was somebody who existed. There's a story to tell there that would be fascinating. But I don't and I don't know what that story is. I, I, do you know, I, I think there's a cause as well to to, to 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 find out a bit more about Ron Grainer. I mean, he was so prolific, sure, and his name was everywhere. But seeing as he's such an important figure and an important contributor. But in that, as I say, in season one, Peter Brahatsky, the first the guy who designed the TARDIS and did that one episode and, and no more. Um, oh, yeah, there's there's loads of people I would like to go looking for. And I will if they'll let me. <laughs> Toby, thanks so much for your time. As always, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Toby. Amazing. Toby, God bless you. Toby's podcast listeners, Booze Round, which you can still get via the Big Finish website for nothing, is the first podcast I ever listened to, and it's phenomenal. Toby tried to interview someone from the production of every single Doctor Who story, and it's amazing the amount of people he spoke to even some people are no longer with us it's priceless if you've never listened to it you should totally check it out yeah definitely agreed i gave him a hand with uh, yep. one of his early episodes the one to get hamish wilson so there we go i quite enjoyed in that right let's uh, keep it going um we've heard tom's thoughts on a few of these stories already so dave thoughts on the space museum people tend to say episode one's great the rest of it's a load of boring old people running around and boring aliens versus even more boring rebels. Where do you stand? I think it's got a bit of a bad rep because it's got a lot of fun elements to it. The first episode's a masterpiece. I remember the first time I saw it when it was on, um, I think it was BSB's Doctor Who Weekends, you know, in 1990. Um, and I'm sure I've given thanks in the past to Chris Taggart's family for giving up their whole weekend to record all those Doctor Who stories for me. The first episode's genius, I think. There's some really good ideas. And it's fair to say that the rest of it doesn't maybe live up to the the concept, but it's got you know to the full high concept of the first episode. But it does have some really good stuff. Like you've got the Doctor hiding inside the Dalek, which is very funny. Um, Vicky gets a bit to do, which is quite good. Um, the episode titles are amazing. I think was it yes. the final phase? 
one of them, isn't it? Yeah, that's brilliant. The dimensions of time um, and yeah, the search. I, I, I think the final phase just give, it gives it a weight, and it's it's you know it's up there with the twin dilemma and the underwater menace and the space pirates. You know, sometimes Doctor Who might look a little bit schlocky and be a little bit less a bit a bit looser than it normally is. I don't mind it. Um, I think the bad reputation it has is I think um, a little bit undeserved and, and overstated like you know the scene of the doctors being interrogated is hilarious if you ask me yes um, and as a man you know there's a couple of bits I've already mentioned I think it's I think it's fine there are a lot worse Doctor Who stories in the Space Museum there are a lot of stories you know the received wisdom has become since it's you know reviewing the in um in the discontinuity guide in the 90s that it's a, a fascist versus rebels run around and it's just, there's a lot more to it I think you, you, if I think with most Doctor Who, there's always some gold to find if you make the effort and watch it. You're always going to, the acting's always really good. I mean, it's got young Jeremy Bullock for crying out loud. That's fascinating. And as I've said already, Maureen gets a fair bit to do. And it's interesting. And they're still trying. The key thing is, as I said at the top, it's still early days for the programme. So they're still trying different things. So, you know, why not have a high concept episode that gets a bit simpler? You know, yep. and then gets a bit of concept. You know, I, lo- I love the start when the, their costumes sort of flip around, and I love when they see themselves in the the glass jars and stuff. It's I like it. I, there's, it's not. Is it? It's definitely not my least favourite story this season. What do you think of it? I really enjoy it. Um, I think there's when it's funny, it's hilarious. Particularly, you mentioned the Doctor's interrogation, and then when we get to see the image of Hartnell in a Victorian bathing costume, hilarious. Yeah. And uh, there's obviously there's the highly gift moment of the Doctor hiding inside the Dalek, which notably is uh, hasn't been done up to look like a Dalek for the chase, which is obviously just a couple of weeks right. away, which is a sort of geeky thing that I notice. Um, but yeah, I think there's some good moments in here. It's it's not the, it's never going to be a season poll winner, but I think the great moments when it, when it's good, it's very good, and when it's not good, mm. it is tediously dull. So I think really. I think it's middle ground. It's it's an average story with a great central concept behind it, but as you said, the execution just it can't quite sustain it. It's a brilliant ideas in yeah. there, and it's one of those ones. It's just, mm, the, I mean, when we hear about the mighty Morok Empire, and I think it's a bit ironic that Moroks sound a bit like bollocks, but um, we can <laughs> we can live with that. No, I mean it's it's an interesting thing because we all know that you know. There's a lot of people that will slag off William Hartnell's performance over his three years, and they they, are, they don't give him the credit for the fact that they, the way the program was made is completely different to the way it's made in modern times. Even complete, you know, very different to the way it was made in the eighties. It was there was no time for retakes and stuff. And I've seen and read a lot of stuff about how there was a feeling that they often didn't have enough rehearsal time. And I think some of the stories and episodes in this series especially in the Dalai invasion of Earth and the, the chase. I think, again, that's I think more to do with Richard Martin. You could maybe tell that they maybe, if they'd had a second run through of it, a lot of it, it would have done really, it would have done better. And I think the trouble with some of the Space Museum is every so often you're going to have to have something fairly ordinary because, you know, they were making it on the hoof constantly. You know, it wasn't like they had a lot of time to plan in advance, scripts are failing all over the place at that, you know, at times. So I think it's often the case that the people that made Doctor Who, especially in the early days, they deserve a lot more credit than they actually get just for being able to get it done, given the resources and the time that they had and all sorts of things. So every so often, if you get a story that doesn't break the mould, it's fine. It's still going to do the job. 
Absolutely. And it's a good way of killing 25 minutes or so, but there we go. Right, we'll move yeah. on and have a... We've, we've mentioned it again, and as always, we've mentioned the chase a bit earlier. Um, Tom, you can shut your feast because we've already heard from you in this one. So, Dave, I think you mentioned episode titles earlier. This one has some real belters. The Executioners, The Death of Time, yeah. Flight yeah. Through Eternity, Journey Into Terror, The Death mm-hmm. of Doctor Who, and The Planet mm-hmm. of Decision, which is probably the weakest title of the lot, but still great fun. And But unfortunately, as you say, Richard Martin as director is perhaps um, he's perhaps the Peter Moffat of his day, shall we say. Well, he was very young. And I think just a bit green about the gills, you know, when he was making this stuff. I mean, you compare the, the, the episodes in the first Dalek story that were directed by Christopher Barry with the ones that Richard Martin made, and there is a palpable difference. And I think it's, it's, his biggest fault seems to have been maybe too much confidence that they could actually try and achieve what they, they tried to achieve, you know, rather than sort of going, nah, there's no, cha- there's, there's no chance we'll get that done. So I think he deserves the credit for trying more than anything else. So I think I think comparing him to Peter Moffat probably isn't fair because Peter Moffat was a clock watching. Let's get this done with as minimal fuss as possible. And I think Richard Martin was definitely trying new things. I don't think you could accuse Peter Moffat of new things terribly often because he, you know we we've discussed endlessly open on a narrow shot and the five doctors open on a close up shot of the TARDIS console. Pull back. He does it like four or five times and everyone just stands around and chats. He films scenes in a visitation when. You have the back of Peter Davison's head looking at the alien rather than the two of them being face to face. And, you know, so you can see that it's he's, he's lazy. And I don't think you could say Richard Martin was lazy. He was maybe over ambitious. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Because if you don't try, you're not going to, you know, you'll never succeed if you don't even try. So I think he deserves a bit more. Who, who could we come? I don't know. I mean, I think the best sort of comparison you could maybe make for Richard Martin is someone like, um, it's their others, it's a, a different sort of side of the job was maybe Andrew Cartmel, who was someone else that came in and had ideas and enthusiasm but maybe didn't have the time or everything else to get everything that he wanted done so I think we always need people that are going to try and push it rather than someone that's just going to I don't know give you know serve up the lowest rent laziest easiest type of doctor whoever and I don't think you could say that about Richard Martin really no I think that's fair I will I stand corrected in that I think that was I plucked a name at random and it was not a good name to select. <laughs> no, but but also, no, but it's a good. No, it, no, it is a good name to pick though, because it it it's. You, I mean, you could talk about how you could compare them to Douglas Camfield. You could talk. You could, I mean, it's it's always interesting to compare the different di- directorial styles, and put any two different directors together, and you will highlight the, the strengths of one, the weaknesses of the other, and that's always interesting to do. I've also just noticed that episode five, the death of Doctor Who was transmitted exactly nine years before I was born. So there we go. Interesting. Um, I, I before, to... before, oh, hang on, I have to tell you this. On that note, did you know that seven years to the day before I was born, um, an episode called The Steel Sky <laughs> no, was transmitted? The Ark. Yeah. yeah, Jim Sangster pointed that out to me, I think, one year, or when it was on my birthday. Good yeah. fact. My sky. Episode about my <laughs> that was less than a year after the after the episode about my trap, so that was quite. <laughs> well, you can shut your trap for a second because I'm going to give you my thoughts on the chase. I Please think there's do. some there's some brilliant bits in it. I mean, I think like the Dalek emerging from the sand, fantastic. 
okay, maybe the night for day shooting doesn't quite work around that, but there's some great moments in there. Um, I mean, I think the whole stuff with the mechanoids is brilliant. I think the mechanoids look great, and it is a real shame that they never came back. I have got a character mm. options mechanoid on my shelf, and I'm looking at it, and I saw them reduced at one point to 15 quid. I wish I'd bought more, because they were amazing. Could have got I've three. got one too. I've got three. Good grief. I wish I'd got three now. That's what I'm saying. Then it could have been just right. like a TV show oh. with three props, but uh, it was not to be. Um, I wonder I, if that is a good that is a good point. Now, I know that BF have done a couple of good stories with them, but let's get the mechanoids back on the television. Russell T. Davis, go on. You can just CGI them completely now. They'd be so easy. Yeah. Just little math, math and models. They'd be a piece of nonsense. Yeah, geodesic shapes, I think that's what they refer to them as. But yeah, yeah, it should be good fun. Um, but yeah, I, on the whole, it's, it's funny how it's often overlooked as people tend to talk about because the first two films, or because the first two stories were adapted into films and the chase wasn't. It's quite easy to overlook the chase, but the fact that it's it's very kinetic, you could almost imagine it being like a Russell T script in some ways because it's just fast and furious for the yeah. 60s and you're yeah. jumping and jumping and jumping and it's not staying in the oh, one place. That That's the thing. I think the script on paper is brilliant. I remember really enjoying the novelization when I first read it because that was obviously a good while before I saw the TV version. Yeah. Um, on paper, it's great. And I think, you know, if they'd had maybe another week to work on the first couple of episodes, another month to work on the whole thing overall. If they hadn't had to do it in that old way of filming it, you know, over an hour and a half, one Friday night or whenever it was they did it, I think it, you know, if they'd got another shot at some of it. I mean, it's got the Marie Celeste stuff, which is brilliant. It's got Daleks versus Dracula and Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. The Beatles are in episode one, for God's sake. Of course. You know, um, I didn't know they played classical music, which is hilarious. And of course, you know, the final episode has that, you know, wonderful um <laughs> became became such a meme a couple of years ago of London nineteen sixty-five. It's it's when we say goodbye to Ian and Barbara, which mean that means that Bill Hartnell is the only surviving original cast member left in the yes. programme at that point. That's yeah. huge. Mm. Um the chase is one that I always sort of think of in my head as and it's a horrible word to use, as being better than it actually is. Um and every time yeah. I watch it I always sort of, it's a bit like the two doctors, you sort of think, Oh yeah, uh-huh. But then you watch it and you go, oh, okay then. So it's it's maybe one to kind of, yeah, it'll be interesting, you know, as I said already, it'll be interesting to see what I think about watching it again this time. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've, just, I've also scribbled one other note down. Um, mm -hmm. I've written down the phrase, T-Fowl Head. I think it's a reference to the VHS uh, release when there was that Andrew Skilleter painting and it looked like the Doctor had a T-Fowl Head based on the adverse yes. thing with those large foreheads. I had a pal at school called Alan Ritchie. Um, <laughs> and in the 80s, in the mid sort of 80s, listeners, it became very fashionable. If your hair would let you, my hair was curly, so it wouldn't. So put gel in your hair and have it sort of sticking up and, you know, away from your face and mm. sticking up in, in different directions. My, my friend at school, Alan, um, he was quite a brainy chap anyway. His, um, he, he was nicknamed T-Fowl <laughs> <laughs> because of his hair, which stuck up and revealed his very prominent forehead. So that was quite... <laughs> I bet he cursed, <laughs> cursed whoever it was that came up with that advertising concept, I have to say. And we'll finish off now with The Time Meddler, which is one that, I, as we mentioned, it's, it's so clever. I think it's the fact that it's very much the template for the future of Doctor Who. There's an episode title they never used. Um, the fact that we do get, as you said earlier, 
that mix of science fiction and historical and in a setting that we know and the fact that the monk's in there who I think is a brilliant character and because I remember reading yes. years ago that you know, the monk was played by Peter Butterworth and I never quite thought and I knew he'd been in Carry On films but I didn't realise which one he was and then when I realised it was Citizen B-Day from Carry On Don't Lose Your Head <laughs> that was just like of course it yes. is and it made perfect sense and absolutely amazing yeah. and I think he's just he's just perfect and it's just a, I would love to have seen him face off against Troughton yeah I think I've got a vague feeling that Don't Lose Your Head is quite close to um, the time meddler as far as being made um, and I seem to remember Don't Lose Your Head's got a Beatles joke in it as well it's a long time since I've seen it yeah it would have been it's it's weird when you think about it that the monk never came back still hasn't come back on TV at all and it seems that every time a new series begins on telly and uh, certain certain actors are mentioned as being involved and people always speculating whether or not the monk's going to come back it was the monk that picked up the master's ring at the end <laughs> at the end of uh, at the end of T- David Tennant's second series I can't remember the name of the episode last of the time Lords. Um, yeah it was it was um I remember during PCAP's first series when everyone speculated that um, you know Michelle Gomez was going to be a female version of the Master, maybe that the chap that Peter Capaldi had worked with in the thick of it, Chris Allenson, I think his name is. Yep. I remember gently some speculation that he was playing the monk. <laughs> Just like people want him back, <laughs> you know. And as we've said, BF have done some really good stuff. You know, Graham Garden and Rufus Hound both. You know, playing the monk. So um. I think I think he'll be back on telly before too long. I'm sure he must be, but um, it's another interesting thing to think about as well that the quality of guest star that they had, someone like Peter Butterworth coming in, you know, for a few episodes and then coming back in the next series as well. You know, it's um, it kind of shows that Doctor Who is maybe getting a bit of clout and a bit of a reputation at this point. You know, yeah, that's a very fair point. The fact that I think the monk is just such a likable character. Yes, he's up to his monkey business and um, such like, but he's great. Also, you mentioned the the Big Finish monks. Uh, there's also Gemma Whelan as the meddling nun. Of course. God, we did the episodes and I'm going to forget. Yes, that's right. She was very funny. That's right. Here's a, here's the thing. I remember, I think, when we talked about Dalek Universe, around about the time of Dalek Universe happening and Time Lord Victorious going on and all that, and how it almost felt like David Tennant was the Doctor again. It's very strange. <laughs> It's if that would ever happen, Dave. <laughs> oh, hang on. <laughs> yeah. But all in all, it's a great box set. I got yes. a text from them to say that it was in it was in so thank you, HMV East Cobride, plug plug. Awesome. Branch I can't remember the branch number. But I worked there for hey, do you know what? <laughs> Next year will be twenty years since I went to work in HMV East Cobride. <laughs> what yeah. Uh, anyway. Quite. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this uh, wee catch-up and a uh, chance to have some guests on and chat with my two pals, because it's been far too long. And it's been good fun. That's what we like. We like fun. Yes. Very much so. Um, yeah, because, well, I'm sure there'll be some more reasons for us to, to reconvene and have a blather before too long. That sounds good to me. So it's been lovely to okay. see both of you guys again. Uh, and hopefully we can do something similar again soon. Tom, thanks very much for joining us this evening. My great pleasure. And Dave, I'll probably see you for a walk very soon. Yes, thanks, um, thanks Kenny. It was, it's, it's good to talk. Thank you for listening, everyone. Take care. But Dave, before we go, do you have a question for me? 
Oh heck, right. Let me see when. Are you right? Presumably, you're going to ask me um, if I can guess what song we're going to play out with. Yeah. Um, I really hope you don't pick the Beatles song that's in the Executioners because that will earn us a copyright strike within seconds. Nope. Tell me it's not that. What? It's thought? definitely not right, that. I've no idea. Oh, wait a minute. Is it the theme tune to Wheel of Fortune? <laughs> no, that would be funny, but no, it's not that. What have you got? Haven't, are Nicky Campbell and Carol Smiley going to come on as unexpected last-minute guests? Well, I did bump into Carol Smiley now and again in Glasgow. Do you know, we were out for dinner one night um, at Spontini's in Glasgow and uh, said to Jen, so, look who's next to you. And she looked and she didn't. She just like shrugged her shoulders. So I started doing this. And I put a big grin on, and I'm sort of putting my fingers around to like broaden my grin, so it's a big smile. And she's like, "What?" And it's like, "Smiley, smiley, Carol, smiley." And she looked towards her. Oh, I, really yeah. hope, I really hope Carol Smiley didn't see you doing that. <laughs> no, she didn't. She um, she was looking at the menu at that point. But yeah, there we go. I am. Uh, anyway, so Dave, give me your question. So, Kenny, let's put the listeners out of their misery. What song are we going to play it with today? Well, Dave, I'm glad you asked me that. Because we've got recently Doctor Who fandom has been sort of divided, hasn't it? You could say those who like the then present era and those who didn't. And you could almost say like Doctor Who fandom was just factionalised or tribal. And now that everybody's sort of coming back together, you know, these two tribes are meeting, we're going to go with one of my favourite tracks of all time. It's Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Two Tribes. Everybody, thanks for joining us. And over to you, Holly Johnson.
Are we living in a land where sex and horror 